Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Our guest this week is A.G., co-host of the brilliant podcasts Muller She Wrote and The Daily Beans. She's also a Navy veteran who experienced sexual assault while serving and a former Veterans Affairs Department staffer who lost her job in Trump's loyalty purges. Her experience, insight, and humor can teach all of us. And just a warning, this episode contains frank discussions of sexual assault and trauma. Lindsey Graham Crackers opened his stupid mouth and words came out, and we have some good news. I'm your host, A.G. We know that the deck is stacked against victims of sexual assault in the military today, and today, sadly, we saw the same in the halls of Congress. You know, it's been 23 years since Tailhook and the Tailhook scandal, and things just keep coming out again and again, and it's really embarrassing for the military. Systematic failures and preventable tragedies. Those are the themes of a new report on Thomas VA Medical Center. The Trump White House has been given these detailed lists of government officials who aren't sufficiently loyal to the president. Hey, this is A.G. with the Mueller She Wrote podcast, and I am a survivor of military sexual trauma. Sorry, not sorry. So first of all, tell me how you're doing through this coronavirus lockdown? It's been pretty hard. It's been a challenge. My coping skills are being pushed, I think, to the maximum. As women, as survivors, I think we generally are really good at dissociating and compartmentalizing. This has really proven pretty tough to deal with. Yeah. I mean, as a survivor myself, you know, that has a a complex PTSD, I know that for me... I'm actually pretty calm and, you know, I have very bad anxiety and right now I'm pretty calm and I think it's because the rest of the world is functioning at my level of anxiety. Like that's how I am all the time. So I'm like, see everybody, I told you everything's frightening. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like everyone's at my level. So I'm just kind of chill. Yeah. It's just so interesting how it impacts everyone so uniquely and so differently. And I think that's why it's important that we're just be so kind to each other and reach out to each other, because I don't think any of us can know what any other person is going through. You know, I think there's a part of me that feels extra lonely when you know you can't go and be with people. It's like when you take something away that you've taken for granted, at least for me, I don't know if this is how anybody else feels, but it's just been very difficult. And so you want that contact more. 
And the uncertainty, right? I miss my parents so very much. And because of the way this disease treats people over 60, I'm terrified for them. I'm not scared for me or for my kids or for my husband, but I spend a big portion of the day being obsessing over, Dad, you're not going out, right? If you need food, let me know. I'll go food shopping for you. You know, like that thing, you know, because we've all seen these these heartbreaking videos of doctors saying that they're making choices between who gets to live and who who should die. And it's just, it's really hard. It's really hard. And then the things that like before this, the things I wish I had, like, you know, before this happened, I, I used to say to myself, my God, I love my husband so much. If we could just find a business where we could do together. And now he's in the house all the time. <laughs> and I'm like, um, okay, so we'd have to have separate offices if we had a business <laughs> together. So let's go back for a second. Can you tell us a little bit about your early military experience? I mean, did you enlist and go to boot camp? Yeah, sure. I was actually living in LA at the time. I was trying to be an actress and uh, I was uh, <laughs> 19. Similar to boot camp. <laughs> and I had actually gotten some pretty great roles, at, you know, doing extra work with SAG. But I had run out of college money and I wanted to go back to college. So I joined the Navy and my test scores were such that I was asked to be in the nuclear program and attend Naval Nuclear Power Training Command, which is nuke school, which is a very difficult school to get into. And so wow. with all the bonuses that came along with that, I did that. But there were some downsides. First of all, I was one of the first women. Yeah. What year was this? 1995. Wow. They let women in the nuclear program for one year, 1979 to 1980, and then they shut it down again until 1995 to women. But when I got there, it was me and three other women and about 600 men. What was that like? They set us up to fail, and I'll tell you how. Uh-huh. First of all, we didn't have quarters and facilities for us. They had to move some things around, which upset some people. Second of all, they had to all had to take sensitivity training about how to act around women, because I guess none of them know women in their regular lives. Right. <laughs> then they had to like stop using certain engineering parlance that might be offensive to women. And so they already hated us before they even met us. Right. You know, it's funny because I have found, especially in episodic television, that when a woman director comes in to direct an episode... All of a sudden, and I don't know if it's a conscious thing or a subconscious thing, but all of a sudden, the whole crew will sort of, you know, which is predominantly men, will work slower. And I'm convinced it is to sabotage, maybe subconsciously, but sabotage a woman's ability to make their days in their production schedule. Hmm. Like, I think that there is some sort of resentment that comes along. And I think that they try to sabotage. And I think this goes, you know, it's it's always harder for women in any field. But I always found it so obvious. And I'm wondering, did they try to make the culture seem more accepting of women? Or was it just blatantly obvious? I would say it, it was blatantly obvious. They were new at it. We were new at it. And I mean, it's also 1995. It was kind of a different time. 
Right. Not like 1965, but still different yeah. time. And there was no GYN on base. I guess they forgot to have one. And so when I needed to have a pap smear done, they actually sent me to a dentist. Oh my God. Are you kidding me? They sent a dentist. And so I I was like, no, that's no. So we had to travel all the way from Orlando to Pensacola to the Naval Hospital so I could see a GYN. Oh my God. Just little things like that. Yeah. Here and there, just these little microcosms of just what? That just kind of made the whole thing, just kept you off balance the whole time. Right. Well, if it's okay, I'd like to get into your personal experience. Is that okay with you? I always like to ask first because I don't know what someone's feeling in that day. It is a day-by-day thing. It is. And I never want to bring you more pain or bring up anything that's going to be hurtful. So, But you've said that you you were drugged and raped in the Navy. And that you were told by the military police that if you filed a report, you would be charged. I mean, what the fuck? How, how is that even possible? They threatened to, among other things, there was a litany of threats, but they threatened the, uh, to charge me with adultery because my rapist was married. <sighs> that mentality of protecting the institution and the patriarchy rather than the victim when I read your story, I, I, I related to it a lot. I thought, yeah, I can totally relate to that. Do you think it's a common experience for women in the military? I do. The Air Force Academy's stated mission is to educate, train, and inspire men and women to become officers of character in service to our nation. But more than a dozen current and former cadets have told CBS News they reported their sexual assaults to the Air Force Academy only to then experience retaliation by their peers and their commanders. What do you think the prevalence of sexual assault and, and trauma in the military is? Like if you uh, had to come up with a, a percentage. I think it's more than in the population at large. I think it's probably closer to one in three, if I had to <sighs> guess. My gosh. Reporting sexual assault in the military is not easy. You hear these stories. They all have the same ending. It never ends well with the victim. We interviewed 150 service members and veterans across all the branches of the military who experienced retaliation after reporting their sexual assault. Administrative punishments and all of that started happening. We're talking about serious threats, harassment, loss of job opportunities and promotions, disciplinary actions, criminal... There were even times when we were taking this to court to try to get, just like what you were saying about the institution, we were trying to get the decision to press charges against rapes out of the hands of the base commanders. Because if a base commander has a rape on his base, it makes him or her look bad. So they tend to sweep them under the rug. So they wanted to take the decision to prosecute these cases out of the hands of the commanders and put it into like an outside civilian group. Which, like, if you had on set, there would be an outside group that would right. that would make these decisions, not the director who could lose the whole production or the show that could lose the show, you know, right. whatever it is. And, and so when we were taking that to court uh, to, to take that decision out, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand was helped leading that charge. It had come up in, in court that, that rape was an 
occupational hazard in the military. There is a movement to get rid of the Ferris Doctrine so that you can press charges, you know, things like, and I don't know if my listeners know this, but like you can't sue a military doctor for malpractice based on the Ferris Doctrine. Imagine that someone you love has been sexually assaulted. Imagine it's your daughter and she's away at college. What could she do? In addition to criminal charges, she could file a lawsuit against both the attacker and the school. Now imagine that your daughter was sexually assaulted while serving in the military. So now what can she do? Absolutely nothing. In the 1950s, the Supreme Court decided Ferries versus United States, which created the Ferries Doctrine. The Ferris Doctrine states that military service members are prohibited from bringing civil lawsuits. This doesn't just apply to injuries suffered during combat or training. Oh, that. Yeah, no, this was more about legislation they were trying to pass to try to get the decision to press charges out of the hands of the commanders. But I do know that one of the people who I made the documentary with, the Invisible War documentary with, did actually try to sue the Secretary of Defense and the government. And I think that it was the Ferris Doctrine that blocked that from happening. Well, it's so interesting because members of the military are governed by an entirely different set of laws. Do you think that that played into your rapist's ability to just totally avoid consequences? Yeah, I'm not sure if that was a conscious choice or some knowledge that they had, or if it was just because of the culture. Yeah. And, and, you know, I guess knowing that nobody ever gets in trouble for this, like you said, then it's sort of a free for all. Right. Did you have any legal recourse at all? No. (sighs) No, I was too terrified to tell anyone. By the time they were done questioning me and threatening me and telling me I would lose my benefits and my GI Bill and my health care and my sign-in bonus, and I'd be on a ship in the middle of the ocean swabbing decks for 20 years, making no money. Like, they sufficiently scared the shit out of me. So I didn't tell anyone. It's so crazy to me, and people might not be aware of this, but members of the military are not able to sue the government for sexual assaults that happen while serving. So how did this experience affect your military career? I got out. I actually had to have surgery on my feet. And so they actually randomly, coincidental, they said, you know, we could either do this surgery on your feet or you have to get out of the military. And I saw that as a way out. So I took it. And after leaving the Navy, what did you do? I married somebody I met in the Navy. We were quickly divorced and my mental health just deteriorated. I didn't know why. Because not only did they sufficiently scare the shit out of me so I didn't report the rape, they actually made me believe that I wasn't raped, that it was my fault, and that oh, what what, God, what had so happened sorry. was a bad decision on my part, to quote them. It was so ingrained in me that it was me who did that to myself, that when 
my very best friend was assaulted, I was saying the same things to her that they had said to me. Like, why were you drinking? Why were you flirting with that guy? Right. Why did you put yourself in that situation? Here I am victim blaming my best friend because that's how I felt about myself. And so I try to be very gentle with women who do that because I often wonder if it's because they themselves are survivors. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And also just we've been conditioned to, even if we don't believe it, but to at least hear it and say it, right? Like that's kind of been our imprinting from the cultural patriarchy of sexual assault and sexual violence. Yeah, 100%. You know, and I hope that that's shifting now and that my daughter won't have to deal with that. But, you know, it's terrifying, especially I've really since me to happened and I sent that tweet, I have had to deal with my own sexual trauma in ways that I didn't necessarily deal with. Things that I thought I dealt with and I just didn't. I mean, I always remembered being sexually assaulted twice. And now as, you know, after Me Too, there's been more times than that. And it didn't come to me until women were sharing their stories with me. And then it just became unavoidable. Did you have any help trying to process what had happened to you, you know, through mental health? Like I said, because I didn't even realize anything had happened to me, so to speak, I started having panic attacks. And at one point, I thought I was having a heart attack. I was mm-hmm. 30. I was young, but I thought I swear I was having a heart attack. It was 2006. So I was 32 years old. So I drove myself to the VA because I had no other health care. And I'd never been to the VA before, but I was like, I'm a veteran, so I, I can go there. Right. And I said, I'm having a heart attack. And they sort of chuckled. They're like, no, you're not having a heart attack. And that's when I, they started in with the questions about, you know, maybe this seems like a panic attack. Maybe you have anxiety. Were you in combat? You know, did you see blood or, you know, what, what we, and I was like, no, no, no. And just kept coming back to the VA and, you know, eventually signed up for some mental health, cognitive behavioral therapy. And through talking it out, you know, eventually I was like, well, this one thing happened one time and they're right, like, oh, right. big, like red sirens, bingo, flares go off. And then, like you said, you can't sue the government. So I, I filed a claim with the Department of Veterans Affairs for my PTSD, for my disability. And that was traumatizing because they denied me those claims for <gasps> years, uh, oh which God. is just a re-traumatization of the entire thing because they said, well, you didn't report it, so it didn't happen in our book. Wow. But I was fortunate enough to be in the film, The Invisible War, and I had uh, retired Brigadier General Allison Hickey call me from Washington, D.C. She headed up the Women's Veterans Benefits Administration there and asked me how I was doing because she saw the film. And I said, not good. They've denied my claim three times. They said it doesn't happen. They don't believe me that it, that it happened. Even though I had like follow on HPV, I had to have half my cervix removed, like all these different medical things that happened because of this oh encounter. But she, she made a couple of phone calls and within a week I had my claim adjudicated. And that's 
wonderful, but I just think of the thousands and thousands and thousands of women and men and people who, who have been assaulted in the military who weren't, didn't have the privilege of being in a, in a film. Right, and, right. And what they must be going through. It all played out on the hotel's third floor, where convention after parties turned ugly. Drunken aviators roamed the halls, exposing their genitals and attacking unsuspecting Navy and civilian women. When Lieutenant Coughlin entered this corridor, packed with partiers, a crowd of male aviators surrounded her and pounced. People were actually closing in and um, trying to pull my clothes off. Um, I got knocked to the floor and I kicked and I punched and I actually bit somebody who was reaching down my blouse. She eventually escaped and later told her boss, Admiral John Snyder, about the incident. He promised to report it. Coughlin remembers him saying something else, something Snyder denies. He told me, that's what you get when you go down a hallway full of drunk aviators. I mean, I, I think about that all the time as far as mental health goes. Like, if I'm feeling this kind of pain and I have the resources available to me to, to be taken care of, what about the single mom of four who doesn't have that? How painful must this be, that kind of mental anguish be for, for that person? It's something we need to really get better at in this country. I thank you for talking about your story because obviously every story we tell helps to get women help. So you left the Navy and then you moved into work with the executive branch, right? Well, for about 10 years, I just was in hotel restaurant management, corporate auditing. But when Obama was running for president and he said, you know, you need, we need to be of service to your country, kind of that whole ask not what your country can do for you. Yeah. Uh, and I was really moved by that, but I couldn't join the military again because, you know, I'm a disabled veteran, medically disabled. So, well, ment you know, mental health wise, but that's kids considered mental or medical disability. So I said, well, I bet I could work for the VA. And man, that would be great because then I could help, you know, right. women navigate the system, uh, uh, work on getting telemental health set up so that women don't have to show up in a building with a bunch of dudes, oh, uh, smart. Yep. et cetera. So I was really excited and I, you know, I went to work for the Department of Veterans Affairs. I took the oath of office the same day Obama did, which was also my birthday. <laughs> so. I mean, I'm just so impressed by your patriotism just to, to endure what you endured during federal service and then to continue to serve is pretty incredible. How was that different than working for the Navy? Not very different at all, honestly. I mean, it was 10 years later. So, well, I will say this, the culture was different in that I felt safer and I felt more equal. That makes sense. I think, right? And, and not only because I'm sure the cultures may be different, but also it was 10 years later, right? So hopefully there was a little bit of progression there. Were there resources available to you as a civilian in any capacity that were not as a member of the military? Well, we had a GYN on site. <laughs> right. <laughs> the little things. Yeah, I think that the healthcare at the VA was is very way far more advanced than the healthcare that that we would the direct care we would receive at military treatment facilities for sure. Just with there being women's clinics, there being just so inclusive. Yeah. I mean, I gone to Walter Reed 
quite a few times. And I'm always amazed at how vast it is and how I think you think when you're going to a veterans hospital that it is going to be all about, you know, rehabilitation and amputations and that kind of thing. Like you don't think of it like like their families being treated for cancer in their building and things like that that are so, you know, important to give our military that kind of support. And I've always been so impressed with also the, I mean, when you go in, the just the technology is unbelievable. The VA is fortunate to partner with most colleges and, you know, medical schools right. to do research. So, you know, the VA gets most of its nurses from universities. And it's just, it's a really wonderfully integrated research system. They have very top of the line, you know, technologies and and treatments. And it's one of the best, largest health systems in the world. It's got really great feedback from from the patients. They're very focused on patient-centered care. And it also has really, really good evidence-based health outcomes, not just lip service. So, Okay. So you are working for the executive branch, right? And then Donald Trump happens. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what went through your mind? Whenever a Republican gets elected, you have to be very wary of privatization. And the VA is continually under attack from Republicans trying to privatize it, basically making it like our Medicare system where veterans go to private doctors and then the government directly pays private health insurance industry at two, three, four times the price of, uh, you know, VA direct care. And same with pharmacy stuff because VA pharmacy has a massive discount. And so private insurers are quote unquote losing out whenever somebody chooses the VA over the private sector. So they've been trying to privatize it for a while. So that was my number one concern. And lo and behold, he made permanent the Veterans Choice Act, which was originally set up as a response to what was happening at the Phoenix VA with the wait lists. And it was supposed to be a temporary measure signed by Obama that allowed veterans to go out to the private insurance and private doctors and have it be paid for by the government temporarily so that we could clear these wait lists out. And then we would infuse the VA with money and bring all the veterans back into the fold. Yay, everyone's happy. That was supposed to be a temporary measure and and Trump made it permanent. During a rally in Tennessee, President Donald Trump started touting his record and that of his parties. He started talking about veterans' benefits when he said this. We just passed choice. That was 44 years. They've been trying to pass choice. They've been trying to pass that one for many, many decades. They couldn't do it. We got it passed. The president is talking about the build of veterans' choice. It sent government money to pay for private health care if a veteran had to wait too long for an appointment at a VA facility or if they live too far away. Congress passed a new version of it, but it was originally passed in 2014 under President Barack Obama. Mr. Trump leaves entirely the wrong impression by suggesting it was just passed and that previous administrations couldn't get it done. As for the 44 years thing, it's not clear what the president was talking about. Choice was spurred by the 2014 scandal of long waits at VA health facilities. Now we're wasting money sending veterans to private health insurance and private doctors because it does cost so much more. It costs the taxpayer so much more money. And that's against the mission of the VA, which was supposed to be, you know, we're supposed to be wardens of the taxpayer dollar and spend it wisely. And we're not. 
Have you seen changes already in uh, that have taken effect from Trump signing that permanently? Yeah, absolutely. For example, if they're referring me out now for mental health instead of taking care of it in, in the hospital there and the wait time, I went through the process and the wait time was longer than it was at the VA and the health care was poor. It was poor quality care because they, they're for profit. The money is their bottom right. line, not the patient. Right. Exactly. Mental health is such a tricky thing because I feel like doctors need to be more accessible than regular doctors because of the nature of what being in crisis mode really means. And I know it's a it's it's a huge frustration sometimes with me and my doctor that if I'm in crisis mode, what do I do? I mean, I can't text him. I can't. And I would imagine that the VA is probably a little bit more accessible because it's got to feel a little bit more like a community rather than the doctor-patient relationship. They do focus a lot on patient-centered care, or at least they were. I sort of, since Trump took over, have stopped using the VA. The new secretary isn't very good at his job. And so there's a lot of whistleblowers. That, like an IG report just came out last October. I spoke to Dr. Shulkin, the former secretary of the VA under Obama, about that. And as it turns out, they are not listening to whistleblowers. They're actually retaliating against whistleblowers at the VA. They're sometimes dissolving their jobs, getting rid of them or asking them to move across the country, and in some cases, firing them. The Navy may have fired Captain Brett Crozier, but his sailors would not let him go quietly. Chanting his name, sailors swarmed to say goodbye to Crozier, who sounded the alarm about a growing coronavirus outbreak on board the USS Theodore Roosevelt. Before departing, Crozier turned to wave farewell. Earlier this week, he begged Navy leaders to help the ship's crew in a letter first reported by the San Francisco Chronicle. We are not at war, he wrote. Sailors do not need to die. They're definitely you know, circular filing all of these whistleblower complaints. I think that probably mirrors exactly what's going on with or what went on with the impeachment trial, right? How they villainized the whistleblower there. I mean, it always starts at the top. Since Trump's Senate acquittal, aides say the president has crossed a psychological line regarding what he calls the deep state. He feels his government, from justice to state to defense to homeland security, is filled with snakes. He wants them fired and replaced ASAP. So to handle the list, Trump recently promoted his personal aide, John McEntee, and instructed him to purge the executive branch of anyone not loyal to Trump. A purge! That sounds like the Soviet Union. It's happening in, in pretty much every agency. And then, of course, now we've got, at least when Mulvaney was chief of staff, saying, hey, we found a new way to get rid of people we don't like. We just moved their jobs across the country. And, and they've been doing that. They did that with the entire USDA. They did that with my job. So there's a, a big push to get like people not loyal to Trump out of the federal government. It's just, it's not a fun place to work. And as such, it's also not, the VA is not the place I want to get my care. I go to a private doctor, pay out of pocket now from a recommendation I got from a friend. Within the executive branch, do people support Trump? I mean, what, what are people feeling about him now? <laughs> We've talked about there being a real talent drain at these agencies 
and I hate to say it, you know, anyone who's for it or supporting him or who's left over, I don't think have a lot of ability to to continue to run these programs. So you're working in the executive branch and then Russia and Mueller happened. <laughs> and what do you do? You started a podcast, a brilliant podcast, I might add, one that I'm a huge fan of that I listen to every time an episode drops. I love it so much. But tell me how that came to be. Sure. Well, uh, <laughs> I was watching uh, MSNBC. It was airing a documentary about a couple months after Mueller was appointed special counsel. They were airing a documentary on Watergate called All the President's Men Revisited. And it had like Lawrence O'Donnell and Rachel Maddow. And they were, you know, just talking heads talking about Watergate. And I thought to myself, I bet in 20 years, they're going to do one of these on the Mueller investigation. And I was like, and I, how do I get in on that? I want to be a part of that because I was right. following it so closely and I was so interested in it. And I thought, you know, well, podcasting, I think is the easiest way. It's the cheapest medium <laughs> to get started in. Anyone can do it. And so that's where I, that's where my door was. So I started it up and I wanted it to be um, from a woman's perspective. Uh, so I contacted some uh, women that I know and I wanted it to be funny. So I contacted women comedians. So smart. And did you face backlash internally at work? There was a couple of things that like, first of all, I, I go by AG. So, you know, I use a pseudonym. I, I hired a lawyer to ensure that I wasn't violating the Hatch Act at all. And I have not. Smart. And then, although it'd be tough to prosecute, right? Because you can't let some people get away with it and then punish others. Although I can see Trump doing that. Yeah. <laughs> but my employee records were FOIA'd by Trump's Office of General Counsel. And I was investigated a little bit. Wow. There's some other things that are going on that have not resolved yet. So I can't really speak about them, but it's an ongoing saga. Well, I'm sure he's got files on me somewhere as well. He's got you a know, whole enemies list, doesn't he? Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I ask this question quite a bit because there's so many things about him that are so terribly wrong. But what do you think is the most dangerous thing about Donald Trump from your perspective? Well, right now, I mean, my answer would have been different three weeks ago. Right. Well, it's ever changing, isn't it? <laughs> it gets it's just when you think it can't get worse. But to to find out from the Washington Post that he knew in January, early January, uh, about the uh, the dangers posed by this virus and slow walked it, did nothing, didn't want the numbers to look bad. That will cost lives, thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives. I can't even comprehend how a leader would sit on that information. And then, you know, you look at the entire GOP with this selling of stocks. 
<laughs> I was just going to say, and then yeah, sell I mean, stock to, and profit off of it. And then, you know, try to, try to slow walk everything until your, you know, your, your son-in-law can get the, the rights to a test kit or, or try to buy the vaccine from Germany and corner the market so you can profit. It's disgusting. Yeah. There's a special place in hell for people like that. I really believe it. What do you think is the appeal to people who still support him? Why are people still supporting him? I think it's the fear and the xenophobia, honestly. You do? I do. You know, that he paints everything as others, you know, even right. even with this virus, calling it the Wuhan virus or the Chinese virus and we have to close our borders. A wall would fix this. It all boils down to that fear and hate. And I think there are just people who hate is like a drug. It's it's addictive. And I think their people are just hate addicts. I also think that it was the time for him, meaning there were a lot of people. I talk about this quite a bit. There are a lot of people in this country that felt ignored and didn't feel like they had a voice and were struggling so immensely under Obama. And instead of embracing those people like the Democratic Party should have done, what the Democratic Party did do was just say, ah, you know what? We don't need to reach out to those people. And I think Trump spoke to those people in a way that was almost the answer to their problems, right? And I think when you're that, when you're struggling that much, I mean, eight out of 10 Americans live paycheck to paycheck, and we're going to really see what that means now with the coronavirus and, and how Americans are going to struggle. And it's going to take years, maybe a decade to get back on its feet. But when you think about the missed opportunity that we had in 2016 to really reach those people, and now... You know, I think that he spoke to them, and I think that that's why people voted for him. They were like, well, he's he's not a part of that political party that we did shitty under, so I'm going to vote for that guy because, you know, and he made all those promises, drain the swamp and all of that. Yeah, it reminds me of, I don't know if you've seen American History X. Yes. But when he's recruiting, yes, the kids gives that speech. I think it gives people a home. They feel important. They feel better. And I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it becomes cultish because you have a leader that is preying on the most vulnerable that are looking for hope and looking for that dream. And I think that hope is really important. I think it's the thing that ties us all together, no matter who we are, where we're from, on a global scale. It is innately within us to hope for a brighter tomorrow. So, I mean, I think my my last question for you is, what brings you hope? Laughter and each other. This community that I've been so fortunate to build with this podcast, these two podcasts that we do, is just incredible. The amount of talent and compassion and intelligence and action they're plugged in, they're active, they're doing things, they're making the changes. And just to be connected to people like that, I think that's what brings me hope. Well, you certainly inspire me, A.G. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. 
We all know that our military has a sexual assault problem. Every Secretary of Defense for more than two decades has acknowledged this. The problem hasn't gone away, and military sexual assault is as pervasive as ever. And so our bill essentially allows the decision of whether a crime has been committed and whether it should go to trial uh, be made by trained military prosecutors, not commanders. Because right now, uh, troops don't have faith in the system. Last year alone, about 15,000 cases of rape, sexual assault, unwanted sexual contact. And only about 6,000 of them are reported, uh, only about 4,000 openly. And of those strong souls who reported, about 59% are retaliated against for reporting. So we need a military justice system that is more transparent, uh, more effective, uh, one that is worthy of the sacrifice that our troops make every day. The Ferris Doctrine. It's the classic example of unintended consequences and intentional misuse of the law to intimidate, humiliate, scare, and silence victims of military sexual assault. Through this concept, military members can't sue the government for illness or injury that occurs during their service in most cases. This was intended to keep soldiers wounded in battle from suing the government, given that the likelihood of being wounded in battle is very much part of the job duties of a service member. Being raped, though, and the trauma sexual assault brings with it, that is very much not part of a service member's duties. We need Congress to fix these egregious flaws in the way we treat our service members. The Ferris Doctrine must go away We need Congress to fix this egregious flaw in the way that we treat our service members. The Ferris Doctrine must go away. We need our government to hold itself accountable and to let us hold them accountable when they drop the ball. This protection hurts people from serving our country. The women and men who wear the uniform do so because they are ready to stand up to the world's most evil regimes to protect America. When will America stand up for them? Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.